Hi everyone, before we kick off today's episode, we just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all of the listeners that have liked, subscribed and followed the podcast. It means a lot to us and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and follow us on our social media channels. Now for the latest episode. Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Kolazar. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of your favourite team? Or what happens at the training ground? Or perhaps what it's like to suddenly be in charge of the first team? Well, today we're tapping into those questions. We are delighted to have former Brentford and Cholton coach Anthony Hayes join us as we look into what it takes to be the support pillar behind the scenes at the professional level, as well as discuss his fantastic journey so far. Talking about number twos, Jack, how are you, mate? (laughs) Yeah, good one, Stuart. That might be your best so far. Well done. Um, good, how are you? I'm good, mate. I, another early one, so uh, I've skipped the beer and gone for uh, another dark Colombian. Another dark, yeah, I'm on the tea again. Um, but excited for another good podcast. It's going to be another insightful one, I know, as well. Yeah, we had definitely a lot of uh, reaction from last week one with Connor. Um, and again, I think this one's going to be uh, a fantastic episode too. What a, what a great game of the weekend as well, though, with Chelsea Man City. Have we just seen probably the... The best game of the season. It's going to be hard to beat that. Yeah, had everything, and um, it's kind of a uh, interesting too to see certain players really stepping up after making or not making the England squad. I thought you know Raheem Sterling was brilliant. Uh, Cole Palmer's definitely kind of uh, making a name for himself against his old club as well. So really good game, and definitely going to be a tough one to beat if there's going to be a better game than that this season. If uh, if you'd have made it and you played against Huddersfield and scored, would you have celebrated? Yeah, because it's oh, rare that I ever score, so you got to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, we've got a decent player on this podcast. Anthony, how are you, mate? Hi, lads. How are you? Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. So, yeah, so normally when we start with our guests, uh, Jack will ask the, the five quick so far or not so quick fire questions. Uh, so, Jack, over to you. So, um, five quick questions for you. Name? Anthony Hayes. Favourite team? Manchester United. Yes, get in there. Good lad. Uh, Favourite ever sporting memory? Uh, Probably Solskjaer 1999. Banger. Favourite ever kit? Man United black sharp UCAM kit. I think it was 94-95 season. Yeah, good one. Best player seen live? Jack Wilshire. Oh, okay. like it. So, uh, yeah, I think um, obviously you guys sent me the questions. I, I, sound, I sound quite bright here, but uh, I had a bit of time to think about it. But I went to, uh, I've obviously lived in London since um, 2011. And my wife and all her family are massive gooners. So um, not a bad team to go and watch live. And I went to watch Arsenal-Barcelona um, Champions League game back in, I think it was February 2011. And he was 19 playing against... Uh, you know, Guardiola's Barcelona and uh, Xavi and Iniesta. And I thought he ran the game as a 19-year-old. One of the best performances I've... I'm, I'm not sure I've seen a better performance. Obviously, Bellingham now is 
is the star boy, isn't he, in, in world football and rightly so. But that that would be the best live performance I've seen. Do you think if either a state injury free would have made it title after title, maybe other clubs as well? Yeah, it's such a shame, isn't it? You know, um, you never had that clear run of, of games. Obviously, had some issues off the pitch as well. And I suppose if you looked at like a Cesc Fabregas's journey and then a Jack Wilshere's journey, it would have been interesting if Jack could have reached the heights of, of Cesc or, or even gone beyond it. But you'll never know. And uh, it's obviously nice to see him venture into coaching now. And I'm sure, I'm sure because of you know, his shortcomings professionally as a player. I'm sure he'll want to put that right as a as a coach and probably a manager in the future. Yeah, there's that good documentary on YouTube. I think it's called Hale End and it's all about like kind of him and his journey um, into coaching. It's really, uh, really interesting to see because you would you would sometimes think, oh, being an ex-player, he knows what he's doing, but it, it takes a lot of work, as we all know, like learning how to coach properly and all the interactions. Like, it seems like he, he's almost caught the bug straight away of that coaching. Um, so, fair play to him. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anthony, did you get to see the game this week, the uh, Chelsea City game? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, echo, I'd, I'd echo what you guys said. A fantastic watch. Full of incident, full of quality, though. I thought it was a really, really high-quality game. Um, and I'd agree. I think as a Man United fan, I feel a bit flat after watching it because, obviously, City bashed just 3-0 a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, people are saying Chelsea are a mess, but I dread to think how Man United would have coped if they were playing Chelsea on that form on yeah, Sunday. That's, um, that's the one thing I look at. It's like Chelsea gave it a go. I think as a United fan, I don't think we would have gave it a go. I, I think we would have been so scared to play that game against City that you like like what happened City just go and tonk you um, so fair play to Chelsea for coming out there's that kind of yeah. like the fearlessness yeah, yeah. of youth of all those young players kind of not having the fear and um, and not kind of uh, getting on the back foot but just ready to kind of stand toe to toe with City really didn't they yeah I've watched a lot of um, I'm a big fan of Pochettino I wanted him to be actually United's next manager I know he's not um People at the elite, elite levels would say he hasn't won anything. But I think I think my issue, along with a lot of United fans, there's not, a, in my opinion, a very clear way of how they want to play. But I think since Pochettino's gone into Chelsea, you can see how he wants to play. And like you said, he's got a, well, he's got a, a litter of, of talent, some of them young uh, and will cost them points as things stand. But they'll... They'll get the benefits of that in the future, no doubt. And they've got sprinkled with experience like Thiago Silva. And, you know, you mentioned Sterling, who was he was unbelievable on at the weekend, wasn't he? It's it's beggar's belief how he's not in the England squad. If he wants to play for Ireland, he, we'll have him. <laughs> yeah, he might have to uh, might have to change those passports and get him over there. Um, so, Anthony, I might need a little bit of your help because Jack's going to ask me a question and I'm pretty sure he's going to challenge me this week. It's, uh, normally, his questions are a lot harder than mine. I try to look after Jack most weeks, but Jack's going to kill me here. OK, I'll do my best. Yeah, they vary. They vary harder or easier. But, yeah, so uh, this week's question is, can you tell me two players that have won the Premier League but also won another league in the same season? So, for example, David Beckham has won in the same season a league title, uh, an MLS uh, league title with LA Galaxy, and then gone on to PSG to win the title in the same season there as well. There are two players that have done it in the Premier League plus another league title in the same season. You've killed me here. This is a tough one. 
That is a great question. Great question. I can't believe you literally sit at home all day, every day, just researching questions to come up with that. Yeah, this is why we only do the show once a week, so I get a full week to do my research. <laughs> yeah, so I'll have I'll have a thing. We'll come back at the end and, and go for that one. I might have to, uh, if, I, if I go periods of not saying anything, it's because I'm probably thinking about it. Um, but Anthony, I'd love to uh, kind of get started with your, your journey and kind of start from the beginning of... Uh, almost like your playing days, because obviously that's how it kind of ignited your coaching career as well, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um suppose like anyone, you've got aspirations of trying to be a professional footballer. I'm from Republic of Ireland originally, um, so obviously grew up there, played there, schoolboy, um, progressed into the League of Ireland set up at a young age, probably I think I made my debut at 16, um, Athlone Town. I'm from Athlone, and Athlone Town's the, the League of Ireland team. Um, so I played with Athlone, I played in Limerick, uh, which I know your last guest, Conor Nestor, I know Conor's from Limerick. Um, but then I went back to Athlone after a season at Limerick and, and I'd done the cruciate. And at that point, I had started my, my coaching badges. I'd done my first one, I was 17, I think. Um, I'd, I'd just recently completed the B licence with the, the Professional Footballers Association of Ireland. And I was going to be out for a year. So I wasn't really enjoying playing. Um, I'm not the biggest guy. I'm quite small. Um, game's very physical, back to front in Ireland at that time. So um, I wasn't really enjoying it, wasn't enjoying the training. So I've probably not fallen out of love with it, but um, certainly disillusioned with playing. So I started really looking at the coaching side of things. I was, I was studying as well at the time. I was um, studying business studies. My dad owned a, a music business. Um, which I was interested in marketing and stuff like that. Uh, so at 21, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Long story short, finished my uh, my exams and uh, my career guidance teacher in in the uh, in the college I was at suggested I, I go to America to uh, to coach um, with UK Elite. So I done that in, in March of 2010, um, and I suppose that's where the the fire of coaching daily was was lit. Yeah, I think uh, very similar to a lot of people with coming out to America gives you so many opportunities and experiences, right? Of just so many hours that you can't get anywhere back home. Like you can get maybe a few hours a week back home, but within America, you're talking to, at sometimes 30, 40 hours of coaching a week. And that is huge for gaining experience, especially as a young a young coach, right? So you you were, you came out when you were young, you had the qualifications, but it's now about building that experience. So kind of how did working at UK Elite and that experience, how did that grow you as a coach? I think before I went out to America um, and I'd started my badges, I was I always tried to watch the game. My dad was a massive believer when he was, obviously your dad's, my, my dad's been a massive influence on me in terms of football, my love of it, and then encouraging me down the, the coaching route. Uh, but he used to always say to me, like, don't watch the ball when you're watching a game. So I suppose when I was in Ireland and I started doing my badges, I would only really do summer camps, you know, three months of the summer in Ireland. Um, but then when I was playing and studying, I used to be quite confrontational with coaches because I used to challenge them on, like, drills or practices we were doing because I couldn't see the relevance of that to a game, how it was going to help us, so... And I think that's because I was watching a lot of football, but I was trying to watch it like a coach as opposed to like just a fan or a player. 
but then when you do, I remember when I'd done my B licence and I was still playing semi-pro at the time, the tutor said to me, you, you either need to make a choice, you can't be a player and think like a coach, you need to either become a coach and stop being a player or just be a player and then put the coach into the, to the back burner. And like I said, I think that's where I got the, the real passion to go, well, I'm not going to make it as a professional. I don't really fancy travelling up and down the country for a couple of bob a week and probably not enjoying it, being frustrated in and out of teams. So um, that's where obviously the, the opportunity to go to America was brilliant. And like you said, you get that daily um, contact of, of coaching. And I think what was brilliant about America for me was it's the different uh, varieties that you're exposed to. So, you know, UK Petite, where you're looking after like three-year-olds, I think it was, was the youngest age. And it's it's like a glorified babysitting service, but there's still a skill to, you know, work with that age group of kids. And then you go into like, I suppose I would call it like your grassroots type coaching. Um, and then in the summer, you might acquire like a college program or or a higher quality um local team so your range and variety of coaching was you were exposed to a lot girls football boys football so I just loved it I fell in love with the experience of just coaching every single day and just trying to help people trying to better people and trying to have an impact on people that's what I'm massive on yeah I think that that big part there you touch on that there's so many different facets to the job that you can learn from being out here like you said you're doing male female you're doing the younger ones the older ones but it's also that interaction right with the parents the parent coaches and living in a house with other coaches as well it's just constant learning experience um obviously living in the summit house there was a, a plethora of uh, of good coaches in there but also good people as well and i think that's the important part right when you're in these experiences surrounding yourselves with good people and like-minded people so with that is when you're in uh, america what kind of experiences maybe you tap into now well i think first of all culturally it's it's a big shift from ireland right so uh, i lived i went to america when i was 22 so i knew nothing only ireland uh, from when i was born to 22 small town where i'm from everyone kind of knows one another you go to america which is this vast country this vast population you've got to drive for hours um so that is one big shift from like a lifestyle point of view but I think ultimately at the end of the day coaching's coaching so you're dealing with people and I think when I was when I was really young and starting I, I just wanted to deliver and ideally be watched and at the time at UK Elite you had various people that would come out some announced and some unannounced to come and watch it and I really valued that because I, I ultimately wanted to be watched by either your peer coaches who were there uh, or the more senior guys to kind of go yeah I really like that or why did you do that and the question you a little bit um, and then ultimately you know you said about dealing with parents and what I loved about American um, parents and obviously I can't speak for all of them but I just found them so friendly and welcoming so they just kind of let you get on with it uh, so long as you're you know treating the kids properly there's a little, there's respect shown towards them um, I never had an issue with an American parent so I, I just found them really friendly really welcoming Obviously, the, the World Cup's going to be out there in a couple of years, right? And I know the game's like continually progressing. There's more Americans now playing in Europe, I think, than ever before. Um, the MLS, obviously, with you know Messi coming over, Busquets and Jordi Alba and stuff like that. So I think the game's in a really good place. But I just always found, uh, even outside of the um, outside of soccer in America, the other sports like you know your baseball, your basketball, 
American football. They just do sport right for me. So that for me was what stuck in my mind. They do sport right. They believe in projects. They believe in people and they treat people properly. So that's why I always liked it as a, as a landscape to go and work in. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of why myself and Jack have kind of stayed out here for so long. It's just it's just a nice environment to work in. And like you said, the the people out here are so friendly. Um, so then for you, going from America, um, you then obviously went back home and I believe you went down to London? Yeah, so, um, you know, you mentioned Summit House and some great people there, people who have been to my wedding, I'm still friends with now. Um I would I call it more of a social house than a coaching house. Uh sure. lots of good crack there. But um yeah, I met my uh my my now wife, then girlfriend was uh worked at UK Elite as well. So she lived in um Jersey Shore. Uh I, I can't remember the house down there now, but it was Jersey Shore. And um she had done two years out there and she's from London. She wanted to go back to university. Um I wanted to stay for another year because I loved it that much but then in the back of my mind I was like right well you know I've got this so many hours now of contact time my aim then was to try and get back into a professional academy in, in England so I went back to London I went first I went back to Ireland for Christmas 2010 and then I went to London in I think it was the 14th of January 2011 and I've been there ever since so I didn't have a job when I went to London initially I lived in my uncle's flat he was kind enough to to give it to me to to live um funny enough my sister had come over to to London to work as well because things in Ireland started to to go downhill um in terms of job opportunity and, and what have you so um I had a place to live loads of CVs bundle of enthusiasm and I was just desperate to try and get into an organization to work and um one of the guys in in America uh, Naji Shatliff is his name. I don't know if you know Naji. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he put me in touch with a guy called Robin Mallinson, uh, Westway Sports Centre, so West London, and uh, went in to meet Robin, had a chat with him, and ended up it's basically like a community grassroots project, and ended up doing a couple of days a week there. They had some coaches, part-time coaches who had a bit of a connection with Brentford, um, and again, it's again it's people who you know, my father-in-law now, um, his boy was at Arsenal um, and the head of recruitment at Arsenal had just left to go to Brentford to head up the recruitment there and he just said to me one day, I'll give us your CV, I'll, I'll give it to the head of recruitment at Brentford and I was still doing my couple of days a week at Westway and that's a big shift by the way, coming from Irish kids, American kids, West London, inner West London kids is a big shift in terms of how they are, how they approach you, um, how you approach them. It's a real different dynamic. So that was some good learning as well. But I, I got a call to to come in and meet the head of coaching at Brentford, a guy called Stuart English, who's at Sunderland now. And, um, and thankfully, he asked me to come in and just do some observation. So I did it on eight weeks of observa observation on the nights. I wasn't, I wasn't working at Westway. Uh, all volunteer. Um, I don't think you'd get much of many people doing that now I think people want to be paid they want a job um, so I think that was some really good grounding for me and it gave me a chance to see really good practitioners coach and then out of the blue um, I hadn't met the academy manager fella called Ozzy Abanji and came down on like I think it was a Thursday or something 
and he literally just tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, oh, you're, you're the Irish guy, what's your name? Tell me a bit about you. And then he just said, okay, you're going to deliver a session for a half an hour on our 14th time. So I had to literally think on my feet, look at the numbers that were there, deliver a session, got some feedback afterwards. And thankfully, I was given a part-time job at Brentford in the academy. They were a centre of excellence at the time. They were, they were moving into an academy at the end of the uh, 2011 season. So I was doing a little bit of Westway, a little bit of Brentford, ended up doing a little bit in Brentford in the community, um, Brentford Development Centre. So I ended up working seven days a week um, for the first couple of years in London. And again, going back to that experience of America, the variety was incredible because you're, in, you're doing breakfast clubs, you're doing PE lessons. Uh, then you're working with, you know, the grassroots community side of things at Westway. Then you're working with, um, if you want to call it elite players at Brentford's Academy. Uh, and then development centres who are, you know, players that are just off the cusp, but not a million miles away. So I had some great variety of experiences um, at Brentford in such a short space of time. And because of the environment and the people that were there, I, I learned so much in that in that first probably, eight, in particular, 18 months at Brentford. It was, it was like my mind had been blown. So just going back to where you said, obviously, you went into Brentford as that volunteer just to get that experience. For any aspiring coaches that are listening to this, how crucial was that time? Because like you said, not many people want to go and volunteer their own time. How valuable was that for you going in for, say, six weeks, just watching and, and that importance of watching more experienced coaches? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, you've got to want to do it. You know, it's weather's not nice, it's cold, it's wet. But like I knew, like I, I was... I had so much uh, contact hours in America, but I was very much like a baby in terms of my coaching experience, coach delivery. I had so much I needed to improve on. And you improve in two ways. You improve by doing it and then people giving you feedback or you improve by watching good people deliver and taking some of their skill sets and then applying it to your own personality because you have to be authentic. Um, so that six, seven, eight weeks, however long I've done it, um, you start to build a relationship with people. You start to ask them questions. They were really like um, open about, you know, get right close. Um, and then you just start to being proactive, don't you? So if the ball gets kicked away, you go get, grab a ball at the end of the training. You, you pick up some cones. So you're giving them a little bit back as well as taking a lot from them. Um, so valuable, really, really valuable. And you, you had people who were coached at Arsenal, at Tottenham. And I can't speak highly enough of people like Ozzy and Stu because yin and yang, Ozzy drove it very, very stern, wanted a certain way of working, certain way of behaving, certain way of playing. Stuart was more softer, so if things didn't go well for you on a coaching night, because it was all about the players, you know, he'd be there to put his arm around your shoulder and, you know, give you some feedback, but in a nicer, delivered in a nicer way. So you got like the best of both worlds. No, that's fantastic. So... When you were at Brentford, obviously you had a variety of roles, obviously going from voluntary then into like different parts of coaching. And then you, you finished up right as the, the assistant head of coaching. Yeah, so um yeah, variety of roles. I was like foundation phase coach when I first started part-time. Then at the end of the twenty eleven season, I was elevens and twelves head coach. That was when they were a Katsu Academy their first year. Uh, I did a year of that, then I went into uh straight into assistant under 18s coach for two and a bit years. Then I went back and led the uh, 13s to 16s. And I was really disappointed because 
I felt my skill set suits, uh, you know, 15 to probably 18 year olds at the time. And probably in my own mind, after the experiences I had at Brentford, I started feeling that I'd love to specialise in, you know, that 16 to 18 age bracket. Because um, it's such a, an important uh, timescale for players to develop, you know, in all aspects. Um, so it really interested me. And at the time, uh, we had just lost the national final to, to Charlton. And don't get me wrong, it's not all about winning, it's about what players you can you can push through and um, we had 10 players go from scholar to pro so we felt we had done a decent job and then the academy manager just pulled me and he said listen you don't have a, an experience of managing staff uh, you haven't had a chance to manage staff yet and um, so he said I, I'm going to take you out of the 18s you'll be the 16s league coach uh, but I want you to manage the 13s to 16s basically players and staff program and I was really pissed off I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that but uh yeah, I was really angry, really annoyed. Um, and then after a couple of days, like you let the dust settle, I spoke to, to Stuart and, you know, it, it opened a different skill set for me to explore. Um, and now it's given me the ability to be able to, to manage sports science, medicine, uh, physios, analysts, recruitment staff, um, as well as players from 13s to 16. So it gave me a, a completely different... Um, yeah, opportunity. And then Stuart left, uh, who was the head of coach, and left to go to Birmingham. And uh, Ozzy asked me basically to be the nines to, to 18s uh, head of coaching. So I kind of took over that mantle then as well up until the academy closed. So again, going back to a variety of experiences. Um, but I started to kind of, as you do when you coach, you start to kind of get pulled towards where you feel that your your skill sets and your and your attributes lie um, so I was very clear on when Brentford closed kind of what I wanted to do next in terms of the age bracket of players I wanted to coach and work with yeah so it's it's one of those with Brentford I I used to go and look at my so I had family living around the corner so I used to try and go to the Brentford train ground as much as I could when I visited and this was probably back in 2012-13 and it was a case of going in and it was a few just different like like trailer vans almost a few pitches very small yeah, yeah. but you look at Brentford of kind of how they've kind of looked at the data side of the game and changed a lot of that mindset was that kind of coming into tuition when you were, were at Brentford like was there a lot of data involved at your time or was that maybe pre your time no uh, Matthew Matthew Benham um, is the owner of the club he's obviously still the owner of the club now um, listen I can't speak highly enough of the club in terms of you know, what they've done, how they act um, and how they think about the game. They're innovators of the game. You know, they're always looking to, to try and gain an advantage, even though financially they can't compete with probably most of the clubs in the Premier League. Um, so to answer your question on data, um, what I really enjoyed about Brentford from an experience point of view, that it was, it was a very holistic approach to developing young players. So um, I'm sure we'll come to Charlton, where Charlton, I would describe it as football's king. And I don't get me wrong, football uh, drove the majority of the decisions at Brentford, but you had the analytics department that would, um, you know, feed into decisions. You'd have sports science and medicine. You'd have uh, the physios side of things. Um, so it was a very collaborative process. And we used to have individual data for players, team data. Uh, and it was all Brentford's, so you'll see a lot of clubs outsourcing data. You know, clubs like uh, companies, sorry, like Opta and 
stats bomb and things like that. But Brentford had their own metrics. And I think that's what's that's for me what sets aside the likes of your Brentfords and your Brightons of this world. And I know a lot of clubs are currently doing it where they know what they want to measure, but they define it themselves. So it's unique to them. Um, and Brentford were doing that from you know 20 well, maybe before I joined, but certainly certainly 2011, 12 they were doing it. Yeah, and it, it seems like they've definitely done a lot, made a lot of smart decisions. And obviously in 2015, 2016, they decided, right, to, to close the academy. Um, so how, where did that kind of leave you in your journey at that point? Well, obviously, first of all, your the, the, the plan was a 10-year plan. Um, I think it was 2014, they opened the Dome. Um, that Obviously, Matthew had invested a lot of money into the academy. Um, but like you said, the of, he employs a lot of smart people, so an audit was done uh, at the time. E Triple P, you know the, the big clubs were cherry picking your best players, and they wanted to go down the the B team model. So it was a, a unique decision, obviously a decision that infuriated a lot of people from within because you believe in the project and the work that was being done, but you have to respect it. So where did it leave me? It left me without a job. So. Uh, I was given the, the choice to either apply for a role within the new structure, the, the B team model, or take uh, voluntary redundancy. So I've been there for five and a half years. So February 2011, March 2011 to May 2016. And I felt, you know, great experience, worked with some brilliant people. But I, I felt then I needed a different challenge and a different environment to, to working for myself. So, yeah. I, I left, I didn't have anything lined up and thankfully, you know, you speak to people and you meet people along the way and I went into QPR, went into Hull City and I went into Charlton and I, I landed at Charlton uh, at the back end of 2016. And within Charlton, was that kind of a, a similar fit in terms of jobs that you were doing? Um, I know obviously you said you just touched on maybe a different approach to how the job is done, but you went into Charlton as like with the U15, U16 ages, the ages that you wanted to work with? Uh, no, uh, initially it wasn't, no. Um, so the one of the physios at, at Brentford used to work at Charlton. I came across Steve Avery, the academy director at Charlton, quite a few times uh, whilst at Brentford. And I remember just picking up the phone to Steve and just saying, listen, I'm out of work at the minute. I've seen there's a few jobs advertised. I'd really be interested. I think they were recruiting for like a, an 18s assistant and a 16s league coach. You go through the process and they ended up in point, appointing internally for the 18s assistant. So they offered me the 16s lead. Um, the sole reason I went there was um, the opportunity that they give young players. It's, it's a tradition there. Um, at Brentford, because of the project was only in probably year five. I'd probably say off the top of my head now, Alfie Molson's the, the standout one that came through the academy, even though he came in from Reading at 16 uh, and went on to have a very good career. Sadly, cut short with injury in recent, in recent uh, I think just at the start of this season, he announced his retirement. Um, but Alfie would be probably the, the one that you'd say was a standout from the Brentford's academy. People like Chris Meppham have come through, uh, but he went into the B team uh, before making his debut. But opportunity wasn't there enough at Brentford. Um, whereas at Charlton, it's it's just how they work. Young players, if they're good enough, get given an opportunity. And uh, with the quality of player that they had, uh, the opportunity they were given, and also the opportunity to give staff. Um, and then Steve, Steve Avery, you know, he's an incredible guy. Um, jumped at the chance to to 
to work there and I suppose I've got to say this as well, but it was on less money. It was on less money than what I was on at Brentford. So I was willing to take a hit because of all those reasons. And I think when you're, when you're working in youth development, particularly, again, I was only five and a half, six years into it. Um, it's far from about the money. It's all about helping players, helping people. And, and ultimately, again, going back to it, trying to have an impact. So, um, yeah, started as 16s lead and obviously worked my way through. Uh, and just recently left. What did you find was like kind of the biggest differences between Brentford and, and Charlton? Obviously you touched there to Charlton and I, th- I think, correct me if I'm wrong, like, I think 2022 they were the seventh best academy in England. Like they have a very good academy system. You got the likes of uh, Alfie Morton, as you said, Joe Gomez. Was it a case of Charlton were trying to develop the player to sell on at a later time or was it a case of trying to make players for the first team? Yeah, no, it was always... Um... Always uh, recruit, retain, and, and try and develop your own. Um, I think key difference at Charlton resources. So Brentford had better resources than Charlton, uh, and that's where I go back to the holistic approach, where you had, you know, multidiscipline departments feeding in to the development of young players, the program constantly improving it. At Charlton, uh, if I was to describe it, it's it's football is king. All decisions are made around football. And as a result of that, other departments, uh, particularly in the younger age groups, the 9 to 16, suffer. Um, they're not given the same. Uh, it's improved, obviously, of course, as during the times I've been there uh, with, with greater resource being put into it. But um, the provision for younger players in terms of what they're exposed to with sports science, medicine, analysis is re- reduced in, in comparison to what it was at Brentford. So the rounds... Uh, the, round develop, the rounded development of players was different from Brentford to Charlton. What's the biggest difference? Opportunity. Um, that's, that's the biggest difference. Um, at the time, Esri Consa was there, Carolyn Ahern Grant, Adi Mola Luckman. Uh, Esri obviously has just been uh, called into an England senior England squad. Adi Mola's playing in Italy, I think, at the time, um, playing in Italy now. Um, so the calibre of player was extremely high. Uh, and I think at Charlton, uh, what they had was that not, for the successful Charlton teams, and obviously in recent years that they've been few and far between. But in the year that they got promoted under, under Lee Boyer, they had five or six academy graduates in the team, surrounded them by good pros. So you're not only having academy graduates like make debuts and make a couple of sub appearances; they're actually in the team, enhancing the first team. And that for me was the biggest difference between Brentford's academy and Charlton. And obviously, like. Steve Avery's been at the club. I think this is his 23rd year at the club. So you need time, right? And at Brentford, there wasn't, the time wasn't given to the project. Um, even though the people, the place, the programme was so good, but they missed the pathway. Whereas at Charlton, I think the programme needed to be a little bit more diverse, a little bit more variety to it. And that's where fresh eyes can help. And I'd like to think I've, I've done that in my time. That I've given them different things to think about and expose the players to. Um, but ultimately, they've got a phenomenal pathway, phenomenal players and phenomenal people. So they're giving themselves a chance of obviously getting players through. And like for me, Charlton are a top 10 academy in the country. Like I, I don't get caught up between Cat 1, Cat 2, Cat 3. For me, it's all about your people and then all about your pathway, uh, your place. You know, you mentioned about Jersey Rose. It wasn't nice on the eye. You see it now. It's They've done a fabulous job at enhancing it but they're a Premier League club so they've got the resources now to do it but it's still not Disneyland 
there's still that grit about it, which I think you need. And that's where I think Charlton have they've still got that South London grit about the place. It's it's humble, um, hard working, and uh, like I say, going back to it, they've got an incredible path with really good people, and they've recruited some 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 very very good players. Yeah, no, it's it's great to hear that the opportunities in the pathway, not only for the players, but then also for the internal staff. Um, so you obviously you, you progress through the ranks at Charlton. Um, kind of speak about a little bit of like your time going from that promotion then into the, the U23 setup. Um, how did you find that going into maybe more towards that first team level? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something I was, um, I was chasing. Jed Roddy had come into the club as, as like sporting director technical director you know there's various terms now for that role um, and at the end of uh, the 18 season uh, Stephen Jed had asked me about Jason Newell had just gone into the first team set up with Johnny Jackson um, Nigel Atkins and they had asked me would I be interested in doing it my initial response was no um, like I said my I wanted to become a specialist at 16 to 18s and that would have been but my time at Brentford, and then my t- I would have been close to five years uh, doing it over at Brentford and Charlton, different clubs, different experiences. But you know, you're getting the chance to work with 16 to 18 year olds on a daily basis and drive the, drive that program. Uh, anyway, came back and thought about it, and I was like, yeah, well, you know, maybe it is the next challenge for me because it is a it's a completely different challenge. It's games. You've got your group for the majority of us. Uh, you've got a set schedule. You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they're on education. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, game. Sunday off. Repeat. Twenty ones is your six days a week. You made the first team. You might have a plan of a group of twelve players. You come in four of them are needed with the first team. You have eight. You're doing a practice. First team need another two. You're down to six. So it's it's an individual program. Um, and don't get me wrong, my experiences at Brentford have, have always been around developing the individual player. It's not about the team. Um, what teams win, in my opinion, in youth development is irrelevant. It's about what players you're helping to push along the pathway, getting closer to having a senior career. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Gone off oh, yeah. a bit of a tangent there. No, no, it's <laughs> a great tangent because you speak obviously still about the players in that development and it's so... It's so great to see that you're still caring about the development of the players and I feel like when it gets closer and closer to that first team level the more you're focusing on developing that player the more you're going to get out of them as well so even and you look at Cholton and you look at the resources Cholton have obviously once a Premier League team and now obviously been battling with obviously the divisions below with the lack of resources maybe to go and maybe push up into the Premier League is it a case of at every level, even the first team level, you have to develop those players because that's what you have at your disposal. Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer and like, development doesn't stop, right? You know, I'm, I'm 37 and I try and give myself an hour a day where I put some quality into me because uh, I've got two young kids. I'm not working at the minute, so an hour a day is the least I can do to try and better myself. Uh, I don't see it any different with senior players and I've been fortunate enough to do that now for the last 18 months. A 34-year-old still wants to get better. Um, you know, I worked with Michael Hector, uh, who's played in the Premier League. He's had promotions from the Championship. He's away with Jamaica now, which is great to see. But you know, Michael Hector wanted to get better, and he wanted to be told when he could be better. So Michael Hector, at 32, is no different to a 16-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 24-year-old. It goes back to 
it's all about relationships with people and how you connect with people and how you speak to people ultimately. Um, but I think my mantra has always been develop the individual player to help the club win, not the team win, the club win. So if I'm developing players at 18s that I'm pushing along the pathway to the 21s, that's success for me because I'm getting them closer to a senior career. If I'm working at a first team level and I'm trying to help individual players improve, then it's going to help the team improve, which will hopefully help the club win over the long term, whether that's three points, promotions, whether that's selling a player, because every player has got a price now. doesn't matter what club you're at, every player has got a price. So for me, it's always about developing individual players for the betterment of the, of the club. Yeah, I was reading a uh, an interview recently after the United-Luton game with uh, with Nick Cox at United, and he was saying, seeing that game against Luton with uh, Mengi and Tahib Chong playing against United, his progression, he sees that as like his job is complete, as that youth development type of coach or support staff, whether they stay at Cholton, whether they stay at Brentford, United, whatever club it is, seeing somebody progress, ultimately you can look back on it in your career and go, I had a, pl- a part to play in that. And I'm sure you've worked with players at Cholton that have gone on to bigger and better things. And you've gone, yeah, I've played a small part in that. And like you said, if you can help that one player, then it turns to two and then it turns to the club being successful all around. Um, what takeaways do you kind of take from right back at the start of your journey um, and at Brentford that you've then taken into that under-23s role that has helped with developing those players? I think, first of all, it's knowing them. You have to try and get to know them, get get to know their, their background, their family situations, their teams, so you can have a bit of banter with them when they lose or win or... Um, you know, you have to you have to get to know the individual and what makes them tick, what they like, what they don't. And I I was very fortunate, at, particularly Charlton, where at Brentford I had so much variety to the to the job I was doing. That's made me a better coach because I, I worked from foundation right through to the professional development phase. At Charlton, I I worked at YDP and PDP, but the players that I was working with at fourteen. I was still coaching some of them up to recently in the first team. So I've been on that journey. and They've been on that journey with me as well over the last seven years. Um, so the biggest thing for me is you have to get to know the individual. Uh, and that's the human side as well as the football side. And then you find a way of working. So the program, uh, the program for me, you'll develop players because of your program. Because obviously everyone will feed into a program that, that they believe will be good enough to develop players. But for me, that's not enough. So at 21s, because they're trying to cross that last barrier, that last bridge, they've got to be the hardest working group in the football club. They've got to train more. They've got to do more. uh, And then they've got to try and behave right. And behaviours for me, the staff can lead that, of course, with how we act and behave. But the, the biggest way they can learn is by looking at senior players do it. And I think at Charlton, you know, so many of them, I'd probably pick two, uh, Darren Prattley, um, unbelievable professional. He's still playing now. He's 38. He's playing with Leighton Orient. Obviously played in the Premier League. Um, and Jason Pierce, who's now under 18s, uh, league coach. He was recently interim, who I supported. Um, played over 500 games in his career. But these two guys in particular, just how they behave, how they work, how they look after themselves, that's the real learning that the younger players can look at and go, well, that's what it takes to play 500 games or that's what it takes to play in the Premier League or, or even little things because 
the youth development program can prepare players for a first team schedule. And obviously then that's down to the craft of the staff to try and manufacture some of that new games program. But even how you have to recover to be able to play a Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday over a three week period. Like that's that's the demands of the game. And I think robustness is a is a skill that maybe in in youth development, particularly at the top end of academies, we're not exposing players enough to we're a little bit we wrap them in cotton wool and you know sports science red zones and they've done too much and all of that. But for me, I, I went the other way where I wanted players to break because at least then you can draw a line and go, well, that's what he can tolerate, as opposed to we 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 don't think he can go there, but we don't know until we push. So for me, it was about the twenty ones had to do more than the first team to try and one make up for the lack of um, fatigue that those players would experience because we're not playing three games a week. Um, but to also show to the first team players and staff, no, like, I'm serious about trying to be a professional footballer and do that for the next 10, 15 years if, if they were lucky enough to do it. Yeah, that's a fantastic insight into that group being the hardest working. Um, so you touched there on the, the first team and you said how you like the ages of U16 to U18, but then the, another promotion kind of comes your way in terms of being then in, put into the, the first team. Um with as an assistant coach and then as an assistant manager. So kind of talk about that next step in the journey into the, the first team level. Yeah, I think I think what's great about Charlton as a football club, so it's changed slightly now, but uh, it was one pavilion. So you had first team academy staff in one pavilion. So, you know, the corridor conversations, you're constantly interacting with players, staff, academy and first team. Brilliant environment canteen's the same like I said it's slightly changed now because of the football and you know they've got academy first team women's team etc there so but whilst I was 18s for me it's really really important at PDP you have to have a really good relationship with the first team staff now at 18s you don't have to have a very good relationship with the manager because the manager is so busy and that 21s relationship is key but you know I was lucky enough to have people like Johnny Jackson Jason Yu uh, Lee Boyer who like open door policy had me in meetings uh, constantly speaking about the players coming watching games so that was at 18s and at 21s and um, again Jason Neal Johnny Jackson Nigel Atkins came in as manager Jed Roddy obviously was the one that encouraged me to to take that step up in the first place so I had really good access to people on a daily basis I was in the the first team meetings in the morning Nigel um got me involved in in a couple of games in the Papa John's so that was kind of an experience a little taster of it um, Nigel unfortunately lost his job Johnny Jackson went in as caretaker I ended up supporting Johnny quite a bit in terms of mainly match days but then you're you're having even more dialogue and interaction uh, because he was down a member of staff um, so when Johnny unfortunately lost his job um, bit of a pattern here isn't it particularly a chatting with managers um, Ben Garner came in so I always felt um, again I I I wasn't chasing getting into a first team. For me, it's what life has taught me, what my experiences at Brentford and Charlton have taught me is you want to work with and for good people. And I felt with Ben, um, really good guy, first and foremost. Don't, didn't know him, um, only, only met him when he first came into the, to the job. Um, but the environment was important for me because you obviously, because you're a support member of staff, and you don't make the final decision, which I had done at 21s and I had done at 18s, naturally with Steve's blessing as the academy manager and as the leader of it. Um, 
you have to make sure that you buy into the environment. So when I spoke to Ben about how he wanted to work, it very much aligned with my uh, values and my ideals on how the game should be played. And I kind of felt, well, opportunity and timing, well, will I get this chance again? So I decided to, to do it. Um, so I went in as, like the structure was, uh, Ben Garner was um, head coach, uh, Scott Marshall, great guy as well. Um, Ex-Arsenal player was uh, one assistant coach and I was the other one. And we worked as in and out of possession. Um, so I worked on that model with Ben up until he lost his job um, in December. And I became the interim or caretaker coach for, for three weeks. So yeah, that, that you finished on a good point there, obviously, where you became caretaker manager. Um, kind of talk as much as you can about what actually happened when you get approached to be caretaker manager. And obviously, within the games that you uh, you managed was that, obviously, that penalty win against Brighton, um, which was obviously a big night for Charlton fans. So kind of how does that caretaker position come about? Well, it's obviously not a nice position to be in, first and foremost. So um, uh, we played uh, Cheltenham on the Friday night at home and we lost 1-0. And then uh, where I thought Ben was brilliant and you obviously take bits and pieces from all the managers that you see and you work with. Um, ben wasn't one of those if we had lost a game. And at that point, we weren't on a good run. I don't think we'd won an ace. Um, but he, he gave the players Saturday Sunday off. Um, and we had a replay against Stockport County on the Wednesday. So we came in and trained Monday afternoon. And normal Monday, we had a couple of meetings with uh, different units as, as we normally done. Uh, trained, came in off the training pitch. Ben was pulled uh, into a meeting room and literally came back into the office where myself and Scott he was and was like, that's me done, chaps. Um, myself and Scott then were were taken into the uh, a room uh, the owner, Danish-American, uh, was on a computer screen and he was like, well, Ben's just left the club. Uh, we'd like you to be the interim managers uh, while we go undertake a recruitment process. Um, and Scott, um, you know, in, in his credit, kind of said, well, listen, I've come in with Ben. I, I need to kind of um, digest this and see what's right for, for himself. I was the club appointment, so I was, I was given it. Uh, I went in to see Ben before he left and uh, obviously I still speak to Ben now. I class him as like a mentor, um, but he was like, you have, to, you have to do it. So you go from being an assistant coach, working with a plan, we were going into Wednesday's game, 6pm on a Monday night, you're, you have to prepare a training session. I had to meet the media the next morning at 9.30. There's a meeting with the players to inform the players of the decision. Uh, so it's like a whirlwind of, of emotion in terms of what you're thinking, the rawness of the shock of the decision to go, well, right, I'm leading this now. What do I want it to look like? And you've got an hour and a half to try and get your ideas across on how you're going to play on Wednesday. So, yeah, it was, a, it was difficult. Yeah, it was a really, really tough period. We, uh, <laughs> I'll give you a funny story. So um, we, we trained that morning. So meeting with the players, meet the media, which was tough, uh, train, which was easier, uh, travel to Stockport. So Jason Pierce is, is helping me. Uh, the goalkeeper coach, Glyn Schimmel, was there. Uh, analyst, uh, Jake Marquez. So Glyn Schimmel's got a funeral 
that he's got to go to on the uh, on the Tuesday, um, yeah, Tuesday Wednesday morning. So the game's on the Wednesday. Yeah, I think it was Tuesday uh, Wednesday morning, and uh, Jason Pierce was 18's assistant at the time, and they were playing Newcastle in the FA Youth Cup on that Tuesday night. So I go up to Stockport with the team and the analyst. Wednesday comes, bitterly cold during December, snow's coming down. So uh, Jason and Glenn are due to come up on the train. Uh, all trains cancel. Uh, get a phone call at like 12. Lads are starting to panic. And bearing in mind, London to Stockport, you're probably talking icy roads, snow. You're probably talking four and a half, five hour drive. So um, lads jump into a car. Basically, it's around 2, 2 p.m. saying, we're jumping into a car. Um, we'll be up there as soon as we can, hopefully for six o'clock. So the plan was to have a couple of meetings with the players that day. You've got the full day, you know, it's a lot of downtime. So I decided to have a couple of meetings with the players. First meeting, two players are late. Uh, so there's your first test, right? There's your first test. Two players are late for the meeting. Uh, three players, actually, sorry. Three players were late. So there's your first test in front of the group, uh, which I felt I managed as best I could because you're not the manager. That's what you've got to have in the back of your mind. You're not going to be leading this group of players longer term. So, and I've just been the assistant coach where uh, I, I don't believe there's the term of you get closer, you get further away, depending on your job title. It's, it's how you are as a person. Um, but I felt I had to, uh, I had to address three players being late. Um, comes to six o'clock, no sign of the staff. So it's me and the analyst. So game's live on ITV. So we, we arrive at Stockport County's ground um, half six still no sign of the staff so comes to seven o'clock I've gone out to set up the warm up there's cameras following me because obviously I'm the interim manager and stuff uh, I had to do a, a pre-game uh, interview with ITV and they're asking about why you sent up the cones and I'm thinking well I've got no more, I've got no staff but I, I need to do some of the warm up as well I don't mind getting my elbows there staff arrived at ten past seven game was 7.45 kickoff so you talk about like that period of the initial decision of, of Ben losing his job, you're going to be interim. You've got team meeting, media, training, travel, meetings to plan, staff get delayed. So that's that's an insight into some of the some of the stuff that happened, and you and you just have to deal with it. And then you lose three one live on TV to a team that's in League Two, haven't won in nine games. Fans travel up from London. Uh, there's a bit of a protest in the corner towards the ownership. So it's it's not comfortable, and I didn't sleep well that night. And then we were up in up north for a couple of days. But then the dust settles, and and when it all goes back to, and I know, and I know I've rambled on a lot, a lot here, but I think what it all goes back to then is you need to rely on a couple of things. You need to rely on this was all a new experience, so you need to rely on people around you, and that's where your family are so important. Um, but then you need to have belief in in yourself. And you need to kind of go, right, well, the external stuff, I can't control it, so I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to control what I can, which is trying to prepare the players as best I can, try and look after my myself as best I can with the staff that I have around me. And then when I leave the training ground, my family are there to, to help and support me. And Like, you train the next week. We lost to Bristol Rovers at home, 2-1. I still think we were hard done by losing that game, two individual mistakes. And then you're going into Brighton. And you're kind of going, right, you're going into Deserby's Brighton. Haven't won in 10. Um, Rumours of a new manager coming in. I didn't know what that meant for me at the time. I was very aware of 
you know, first team managers bring in their own staff. Dean was announced then on the Tuesday before we play Brighton on the Wednesday and then, you know, an unbelievable night against Brighton, which obviously is probably the pinnacle that I've had in football in terms of how I felt. Um, and that was a nice way to to leave the, the caretaker. But it was a really, really tough two or three weeks. And I think at the end of the season just gone, that was the, you don't get often to hit the pause button and actually sit down and reflect, write some things down. It was, it was a lot of tough tough experiences that will harden me but but make me better if I'm ever put in that position again or if I'm ever the the leader so Anthony you you mentioned briefly there about having a mentor and going back almost getting pushed into a role by somewhat of a mentor in terms of a role that helped you get experience managing staff and different coaches too yeah. how important has having mentors along the way been for you and which which people stand out of uh, helping you the most in that situation um yeah the, there's not um there's not one person i kind of rely on there's probably a network of people that um you know i reach out to regularly uh, whether that's over the phone whether that's meeting them now i've got the time to meet them now for a coffee so um the ones that stand out there's loads um at brentford's uh sean o'connor was the head of recruitment um He's actually a funny story. He's the guy who spotted Jack Wilshire uh, for Arsenal. Um, but he, incredible experience um, on spotting potential in players and then giving players time. Ozzie Abanji, for obvious reasons, um, standards. Like Ozzie training at Brentford, if he came to watch, which was most nights, and you're delivering a session and he didn't like what he saw, he would literally come up to you, tap you on the shoulder and say, you've got five minutes to change this session or I'm changing it for you. And that's pressure. That's learning on your feet. Um, and some coaches obviously you know, didn't like that. Uh, they found it too difficult to, to work in, but I loved it. I, uh, and don't get me wrong, I, I didn't get it all right. And I got a few, a few hammerings, but I felt it left me in a better place as a coach. And... Um, moving forward that I could actually help the players more um, so Aussie for obvious reasons uh, Stuart English great guy I still speak to him um, John D'Souza who's now at the Premier League he, he went to Colchester he came to Charlton for a period as well great guy and then you know people at Charlton Steve Avery just his knowledge his ability to guide um, without being overpowering uh, gives people autonomy just a really really top top leader um, I've been fortunate enough to get close to a couple of managers who are like Nigel Atkins, unbelievable fella. Some great experiences, obviously, at Premier League level, but right down through the pyramid. Uh, Johnny Jackson, Jason New, Ben, Dean now. Um, but recently, I, I've met a guy called Gordon Lord, who's uh, not got a background in football. It's uh, in rugby. Um, and he played cricket professionally. And he is a developer of coaches. And he's just got some incredible experiences of dealing with coaches at first team level, but also business um, executives like you know, your CEOs, your CFOs, um, and just how you manage and lead. Um, and he's been someone that I've really leaned on in, in recent times as well. So there's, going back to your question, there's not one person, but there's, there's people with different experiences that maybe if, I'm, if I need a bit of help and advice in, in one aspect, I can give them a call or say, listen, can I meet you for a coffee? I've just got this, I'd like to pick your brains on. 
So I'm fortunate in that regard. Yeah, having that network of support behind you is very important for coaches, I think, at all levels. Um, you spoke a lot about similarities or, or things that have kept constant throughout your different roles and experiences. You know, you spoke a lot about the importance of getting to know players as people, um, the importance of keeping their standards high in terms of their behaviour and the coach's actions leading the way. So there's a lot of um, constants throughout. If you were to think of one big difference or one big change that you had to make between your uh, a change in roles at any any stage, what was the biggest change you felt like you, you yourself had to make as a coach? I think uh, I think the initial step up from um, the 21s into the first team because uh, I dipped my toe in a few times whilst being the 21s coach uh, with the first team. But it's different than when you're attached to that group of players. And I think uh, why I was excited by that challenge is it's like um, you have to prove to the senior players that you can actually add value to them as well. So they test you in different ways uh, with your practice design or questions they might ask you, which I enjoyed. And again, I think that's where Brentford prepared me for that. Um, and, I, and then I think after time, very quickly, the players realised you know, that I knew my stuff because I could organise practices. But then I was always, my upbringing in coaching has always been, particularly since I've come to England, has always been, you know, coach the players, not the practice, uh, or coach the players, not the session. Um, so I think that initial um, transition from the academy into the senior game, because you have to prove to senior players that you can have value to them because they'll, they'll smell both fairly quickly. And that's where I still think you have to be very authentic to, to yourself. Um, so, yeah, so I think... Uh, I think that gave me a bit of um, that gave me a bit of a, a drive because I wanted my sessions to be the best sessions for if I was working with the forward uh, the the forward line. I, I wanted to really impact, you know, uh, Corey Blacker Taylor or uh, Chuck Sneaker. I, I wanted them to come away like inspired, and that's kind of what I it, it gave me that bit of um, I don't know. I had butterflies in my stomach when I first moved up, so. I think coaching senior players, getting them on side, but ultimately, again, it, it comes. My experience is it comes back to one how you carry yourself, and then, and then two how you speak to people. Oh, that's brilliant. And kind of just to wrap up this episode, what's next for you? Man United job when Tenar gets sacked. What's uh, what's yeah, next yeah. on the horizon for for Anthony Hayes? Um. Well, at the minute, like I chat, and obviously, um, yeah, the time came to an end, and. I accept that because you go into first team environments. Like I said, when Dean came in uh, after the Brighton game, I thought I was gonna, I thought I was gonna go because normally he'll come in with at least one assistant, uh, if not two, or at some case you have a, a plethora of staff that come in. So fortunately, Dean kept me on, and John O'Shea I think helped me out there because I've done my pro license with John. John worked with Dean at Stoke, so uh, I've got John probably to thank for keeping us in a job. But uh, yeah, I worked really well with Dean. Uh, Michael obviously came in after Dean Sacken and you know Michael wanted to to work with his own staff so uh, it was a good time for me uh, to have some time and take some time with my family uh, we're moving house just had second child so it's um, it's a good time for me personally and then I mentioned earlier about doing some reflecting at the end of the season on the caretaker stuff it's given me a chance now to kind of reflect on it's the first time I've been out of the game for a prolonged period in nearly 12 years. So it's given me a chance to look at, well, what have I done well? 
why haven't I done well? And I'm going to get to your, I'm going to get to your question. I promise. There's a method to my madness here. But then the gaps on what I, I feel I need to experience. Eventually, I'd like to be a head coach. You know, I'd like to. I know obviously Connor's doing that now in India, but I'd like to. Um, I'd like to be a head coach. Uh, my ambition is to work in the Premier League. I'd like to do that in the next ten years. Um, but there's stuff I feel I need. I need to do to help me achieve that or prepare myself for that. I'll give you a few of them. I don't mind sharing them. Um, I really want to work abroad, uh, ideally in a non-English speaking country, because I'm desperate to learn a second language. I think if there was any advice I'd give to coaches listening to this, um, learn a second language. It's crucial, whether you're in the States, whether you're in Europe, you need to be able to speak more than one language. Um, so I'm desperate to do that. I'm, I'm doing it on Duolingo, but you know it's not going in there. So um, I, need to, uh, I need to try and live in a country that's going to give me the chance of doing that. And then you get the, the byproduct of, you know, the lifestyle, culture, players, etc. So the working abroad, massive to me. Um, people have said to me recently, I've been at a few, been into a few clubs. I've, I've been on a few courses recently to get my fix because I'm not on the training pitch anymore. Or oh, you've been in the first team, you're going to just work in a first team job. And my answer is no to that. It goes back to, I want to develop, I want to develop people and I want to develop players. So it doesn't matter if they're first team players or academy players. Um, so going back into an academy, absolutely for the right for the right club, but probably I'd like to look at a cat one. And I know I don't get, I said earlier, I don't get cut up between cat one, twos and threes, but uh, the resources at cat one, the game program is completely different to cat two. And I think that experience is something that would maybe add a little bit of value to us. Um, if not that internationally, definitely working for an international organisation would help because you're in theory working with the best players of the country at that age group or if it's a senior team. Um, and I think if I if I can experience a few of them things, you know, working abroad, Cat One, international, um, that will give me the best chance of being prepared to be a head coach. No, that's fantastic. And we uh, we wish you the best of luck with it. Um, from a lot of people that I speak to, obviously from out here that know you very well, um, you're one of the top guys, not just on the field, but off the field as well. So, and I really, really appreciate it. But you do have one job before you go is to help me try and get this question right from Jack because I'm struggling here. <laughs> um, Jack, just for the listeners, can you just repeat that question? Um, yeah, there's two players that have, in the same season have won the Premier League and another league title in the same season. So, the example we gave was, uh, you know, Beckham at, Beckham winning with LA Galaxy and PSG in the same season. So two players to have won the Premier League and another league title in the same season. Yeah, you've killed me here. Um, the only one, and I can see Anthony's brain going here, um, the only one I think I might have a sniff at, and I'm probably wrong here, Henrik Larson. No. I would have thought he would have won at Celtic and then he came to United for a little bit, but... That's that's my only guess. I'm I'm struggling this week. Anthony, any any ideas? No, I'm I'm literally uh, I'm racking my brains here. Um, I, the I'm guessing it's like um, it's like an MLS or like yeah, uh, Northern European League because obviously summer league, winter league, and stuff. But I I don't I actually don't even have a player. I don't even have a name I could even throw out as like a guess. Jack, um, what about what about Cesc Fabregas? No. Maybe Arsenal and Barca. Now go on. Okay, so the first one I think you might kick yourself with is Yao Cancelo. Won the league with Man City and Bayern Munich 
Um, left in January mm, okay. on a loan move to Bayern Munich and won the league there with them, but also played enough games with Man City to get a league. Nah, they played for the scum. Well. I don't care about them. <laughs> so, yeah, he got two there. And then the other one is Daniel Amate, who was at FC Copenhagen. Um, Leicester, no? He moved to Leicester, correct, and won the league with that yeah. wonderful season at Leicester City. So they, they uh, he picked up a winner's medal for both Leicester, where he, I think he played five games, so enough to get a winner's medal, and a winner's medal for FC Copenhagen in the uh, the Danish Superliga. I will be very surprised if anyone has got the answers to that question. And all I'm going to say is be ready for next week when it's my turn, because I'm going to absolutely <laughs> rip you. I feel like the Yal Cancelo <laughs> one was terrible. But no, that that was a tough one. But all right, I uh, I'll keep that one in my back pocket. Um, but Anthony, that's a great que- uh, That is a great question, by the way, for um, pub quiz Christmas yep. time. Very good. I'm sure we, one of us might be in the pub at Christmas, and you hear that, and you go, "Yeah, I remember being on that podcast." And yeah, that one there. <laughs> there we go. Um, but no, Anthony, really do appreciate your time. Uh, some fantastic insights into kind of going from the academy level to the first team level. Um, we wish you the best for the future and really appreciate it. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you. See you next week. Thank you very much. 